1: Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at wyag.org. If you go to that website and you click on the two words that say Start Here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book, That book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet, contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon and Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they use these tools in their lives. And because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials, if you have any of that to share with us, please give us a call at 563-999-3581. And if you choose to do that, when you call that number, if you press 1, it will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll see that it's on. I'll announce you by your area code, turn on the microphone, and we can have a conversation. We greatly appreciate when people choose to do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be of service, and when you call and let us know how we can be of service or how these things are landing with you and or what might be of most benefit to uh, discuss either in a topic or in a worksheet process, it makes it far easier for us to live into that intention. And we appreciate it when people make it easier for us. Michael and Jeannie are donating their time and their money to maintain this website and this Internet show, and um, every little bit of help they can get from people like you is greatly appreciated. And it could be in the form of financial support, it could be in the form of just letting us know how this work is landing with you, how it's benefiting you, and or what topic might be of most interest to you on a given day. There are also the uh, host of other worksheets and tools that are available through the whyagain.org website. If you go to that page as just described, w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n dot o-r-g. If you go to that page and click the Start Here button and then Go further down the page, you'll see a link for worksheets. And there are more worksheets than just the core worksheet in this process. And if you have any questions about any of those, we would be happy to answer them for you. Again, if you are calling in live, it's 563-999-3581. If you're not on live but listening to the archives, or you're on live but you don't want to go with your voice, you want to just... Send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy or you can email Genie at j e a n i e at whyagain That's w h y a g a i n dot o r g. And when we get those messages, comments, questions, answers, or testimonials through email, we do our best to address them on the Internet show, and then, as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time we discussed it, and you can look back through the archives and listen in to uh, hear the feedback or the discussion that was prompted by your comment or question. So, how can we be of service to you today? What's on your mind? What would be uh, a useful way to spend the next 50-plus minutes I did a worksheet yesterday on the um the leg uh pain and lack of uh mobility, uh, instability, and um a quite useful worksheet and it prompted a lot of different thoughts throughout the evening and um early morning this morning. And then um And I had yet another uh, orthopedic appointment this morning. It was far more uh, beneficial than the one I did last Wednesday. And um, we'll get some scans done tomorrow and uh, see where that takes us. But it is uh, a work in progress. And as always, when I use these physical discomforts as uh, pushing off places for my uh, reality management worksheet, it's it it, it, it reveals it, it it stirs things up. It gives me new perspectives. It gives me new targets, and I'm always grateful for that and the work that results. So, if you have any questions about how a worksheet on a sore leg might be of use, you can go to the. Uh, archives from yesterday's show and listen to the work I did then in that worksheet or you can email me or you can call now 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone and we'll have a conversation. I have um, about an hour into the almost 12 hour book by Dr. Bradley Nelson He's the person I mentioned before I've interviewed him. He wrote the book, The Emotion Code, and it's a book that uh, suggests that you can learn to do muscle testing on yourself and you can ask yourself your unconscious, your higher wisdom, whatever you want to call it, whether or not you have trapped emotions that it would be good for you to release And then you can do a very simple process with something even as little as uh, just your two fingers running up and down the center line of your forehead from your forehead back to the base of your skull. Or you could opt to use something like a refrigerator magnet, something very light, and run that over your forehead the center line and down to the back of your skull and do that three or four or five times and then do the muscle testing again and discover whether or not your unconscious uh, indicates that you have cleared or released a trapped emotion and that's in the book the emotion code and that is a you know a whole set of tools that you don't even really have to buy the book to get access to that you can listen to them in some interviews you can go to his website and download the PDF. And um, and some people report tremendous benefit from releasing trapped emotions in that way. And his new book is called The Body Code. So instead of just talking about emotions, he's talking about using that applied kinesiology or muscle testing to um, basically... Interview your higher wisdom or your body's consciousness, the healing centers of your own mind-body-energy system, and then do a simple release technique and um, feel better or remove the blockages to your body healing itself. And uh, I will do more of the reporting on that book as I make progress with it. But right now at this stage, it's just um, essentially it's um, kind of the uh, overview of the book I've already read, The Emotion Codes, and lots of disclaimers about how this isn't to be a substitute for Uh, your own medical care, etc., or medical doctors. But I did get quite a few people who really liked the interview I did with Dr. Nelson about the book The Emotion Code. And the challenge for a lot of people is that they either don't like to do their own muscle testing or they don't trust it when they do their own muscle testing. And That's one of the big benefits of this work, as I see it, is that he's providing a chart and a system for evaluating where the emotions are and where they're trapped that you can do on your own, that you don't have to pay a professional for. At the same time, um, they talk about thousands of people who have been trained as practitioners in that system and that they can do it remotely. They can be on the internet or on a phone call with you and they can do the work and do the muscle testing and help you identify what trapped emotions you might need to release and whether or not they're, you know, inherited or cross-generational or whether they're just in your mind-body-energy system from this go-around. And um, now that's something, of course, that you'd have to pay these practitioners for, but it's a way to access um, another modality for healing that is outside the the Western medical model, which just says let's pair up a series of symptoms With a diagnosis and then a list of medications, prescribe the medication and send the person on their way. Um, I I mentioned this before on one of the Internet shows that when I decided, okay, this pain and discomfort in my leg is increasing and I've taken a few falls and I've, I've damaged something and I really should get it checked out, and I made my first two appointments at um, orthopedic doctor's offices, I was just floored because they didn't ask me, are you taking any medications? They asked me, they told me, please bring the list of medications you're taking. And I was just flabbergasted. I just thought it's, it's progressed This medical model, the Western medical model, has progressed to the point where they don't even ask you if you're taking medications. They assume you're taking a whole series of them, and please bring the list. And I assume some of it might have to do with, you know, when they see my age from the date of birth. But if you're looking for a way to uh, heal or assist yourself in healing that is dramatically different from that model you might enjoy the book The Emotion Codes and I'm going to hold off you know my recommendation for the book The Body Code until after I finish the book but it's a very similar beginning so I'm I'm assuming that he's going to extend uh, the work he's done in the last book and offer a way to start doing muscle testing or applied kinesiology for a broader range of of situations than just the emotions so more to come on that as i make progress through that book and as far as today we have uh, plenty of time to have a conversation or do a worksheet or two 563-999-3581 and um We also have the option to end early because the second half will be um, another recorded, uh, it'll be the second hour of the Aramaicisms from Dr. Michael Rice and uh, Dale Allen Hoffman because Dr. Rice is busy trying to help his family get ready for the passing of their mother slash friend. This is the woman who was Dr. Rice's first wife and the mother of his two children when they were young. Now they're adults and they have their own children. Um, But so if you have extra time to do a little gentle art of blessing or thoughts and prayers in whatever way you'd want to offer them, please do for that family because they're coming together to say goodbye to their friend and mother and it seems as though it will not be too much longer before she passes. Uh, I should mention, we haven't mentioned this in quite a while, but I should mention that if you are or you know someone who is going through a grieving process and you would like some of the best input I have received over the years, there's an entire um, two-hour workshop, recordings of a two-hour workshop that I did a number of years ago, and um, I've chosen to call it Saying Goodbye to Good People Without Saying Goodbye to Good Memories, Uh, it's had different topics or different titles over the years, but it's a process I learned from a friend it's not something that I read in a book. It's not a theory. It's a lived experience of a way to catalog, um, evaluate, and demonstrate to yourself that you can completely handle, manage, and survive looking at all of the memories from a relationship and distilling the life lessons from them without being mortally wounded or completely overwhelmed. And that when you do that and you demonstrate to yourself that you can handle those memories and all the attendant emotions and life lessons, you... You no longer have to run from them. You no longer have to push them out of consciousness into the unconscious realm. And what you end up with is a much more productive um, situation because now you have ready access in the library of your mind to all of the life learnings that come from any relationship you've had. So oh, that's available for listening and the PDF file that goes with it that's basically just a list of categories. It's a, just a, a suggestion. It's not. There's no magic in that list of categories. You can make up your own categories. But that's available on the MindShiftersAcademy.org website. And you might find it under Educational Material, and you might find it on its own page for Grief and Loss Process, but um, just wanted to mention that that's there. I have a number of people in my caseload and in my life these days who have either recently lost someone or they know they are going to soon lose someone. And that's just another resource that I make available to people because it's been so beneficial to me in my life. And I'm absolutely open on any of these days when we're doing a mind shifter radio radio show to discuss anything about that process or people's experience with it, because it's been my experience in this culture that most people do not want to talk about grief and loss, do not want to stay with the process, do not even want to consciously acknowledge the the end of a relationship. And I think that's counterproductive. I think that the more we can face it head on and bring our conscious awareness and our coping mechanisms and intelligence to bear, the better we can process it. And the ultimate benefit, as I see it, as I experience it in my life, is that I get ready, easy access in my mind as I live my life to the benefits and the values and the life lessons and the growing and the the strengths and the coping mechanisms that I developed through the process of having a relationship with someone. And if I don't do a process like this, if I don't actively, consciously step into a review and a facing that the relationship is over and whatever emotions I might generate from those beliefs and thoughts about it being over. If I don't face that, I run away from it. And when I run away from it, I push it into the background because I don't want to face the uh, pain or fear or sadness. And what most of us don't understand is that when I do that, I'm also blocking myself from having good access to the positive, to the life lessons, to the positive memories, to the joy, to the sense of love, because these things aren't separate. My set of thoughts, my interpretations about life events that I pour my mind energy into, which end up. Creating my emotions are the same things, whether they're creating positive emotions or negative emotions they're the, they're just choices in focus and interpretation and so you know the, the the thoughts and interpretations that I use to create positive memories and positive emotions are the very same ones that I can use and do use, it's like two sides of a coin or two sides of a piece of paper, they can't be separated out. And so if I'm feeling, oh, my gosh, this is too much, too intense and too overwhelming, and I'll never stop crying if I let myself think about my mother or father or sister or brother or best friend that just died or that died 20 years ago, if I make a, 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 a judgment like that in my mind, then I end up blocking myself from having conscious access to whatever it would take to heal and conscious access to all the positive benefits of having been in that relationship, of knowing, knowing that person learning through life with them, et cetera. So, again, that's on MindShiftersAcademy.org website, and it's probably under the educational materials page, and it may have its own separate page for um, a grief and loss process. That's probably the way it would be labeled. So... Our call-in number five six three nine 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 three five eight one. 563-999-3581. Give us a call. Let us know how we can be of support to you today. Call that number, press 1. Let's have a conversation. Yeah, I was um, very grateful to Magda yesterday who called and gave yet another example of how her emotional state changed dramatically as soon as she changed a thought about interpretation. And it's just what we keep trying to talk about in here. Why do I do worksheets? Because every time I do a worksheet and I get a shift in my emotional state, it's a live, in life, real live demo to myself that the source of my upset is always internal, that no one has ever made me angry sad, hurt, scared, frustrated, or confused, that that's something I've created with the thoughts that I pour my mind energy into that I use to formulate an interpretation of, is this situation that just happened good or bad or tragic and sad, and should it have happened or should it not happen? Is I throw an interpretation on life, and then pour my mind energy into the thoughts that go with that interpretation, that's how I create my emotions. And in this work, we've you know, we have the challenge of trying to undo, correct the false perception that we've been conditioned into and trained into in our culture that says other people and outside circumstances cause our emotions. So there's quite a bit of work for us to do to unravel that conditioning process. And if we don't do it, if we just try to close our eyes and run away, or we try to pretend that our pain is being caused by the situation outside of us, then we remain convinced of the the victim nature of our experience. We remain Um, I'll say uh, conditioned, brainwashed, hypnotized Um, we remain actively hallucinating that we are victims of the flow of life and other people's choices and yet for those few people who are willing to do repeated numbers of worksheets they get to demonstrate to themselves fairly quickly that that was never the case. And we hope more and more people will do that soon and often and share their results with us because in a sense of community, that energy just multiplies. Dr. Rice used to talk more about the, uh, the vitality meter and, um, you can imagine that there's a vitality meter for each of us that goes from you know 0 to 100 or 1 to 10 whatever it does a scale doesn't matter but if i'm sitting let's say that my vitality meter runs from um 0 which is death so it have to be you know 0.5 or something up until 10 uh, and ten is like, you know, I'm I'm ready I'm at the Christ mind, I'm ready to ascend into heaven, I'm ready to take my body with me in this total, vibrant, alive, joyful, radiant experience of life moment to moment. Well, if that were the case, if I would visualize a reality um in a vitality meter like that, the fact of the matter is most of us human beings are existing at a vitality, you know, at, at level one, two, three, or four on our, you know, the people, most of the people that we, we look at and we, we say, Oh, these people are just so happy and so healthy. And even those people are probably only living at a vitality of three or four, maybe five. A companion idea with this is a meter that will gauge for us the poisons, toxins, traumas that we have within our system, in our mind-body-energy system. And so we might have traumas and toxins that are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 level intensity, we also have within us this innate wisdom, this higher knowledge, this the kind of thing that um, Dr. Bradley Nelson is talking about when he calls the unconscious or your spirit or your soul or your higher wisdom. And that higher wisdom within us knows that we need to have a certain level of vitality to be able to process out any traumas or toxins that we experience. And so in a self-protective manner, Dr. Rice talks about how our higher wisdom will not even let us become aware of a trauma or a toxin that is higher or stronger than our current vitality. So you might imagine that we have traumas and toxins, each and every one of us has things in our life that might go to the range six, seven, eight, whatever, but we don't consciously address them day to day or we wouldn't be able to function or perhaps we'd even be deathly ill. So our unconscious hides that from us and only lets us see things that are less than our current vitality. So if you imagine that... um, I am um, fully rested. I'm a healthy young person. I'm fully rested, and I like to run, and I run long distances. And on this fully rested day, I'm thinking of going out for a run, and I run 5 or 10 miles. It's a beautiful, warm day. I like the heat. I'm hydrated. And I run 5 or 10 miles, and then I come back, and I... Um take a shower, and I go meet friends and then we uh go out for a bite to eat and then maybe some dancing and and then later that night um i i I comfortably go to bed i I've spent lots and lots and lots of energy, and i'm not overly sore i'm not passing out from fatigue i'm just i've got plenty of energy left. I might stay up reading for a while and then go to bed. On the other hand, that very same person can work all day at a 9- or 10-hour job on construction. I've actually been in this situation myself. On a hot, sunny day, up on a roof, 100-plus degrees temperature, lifting, carrying, sweating, working hard to stay hydrated, on the verge of heat stroke, and come home and have every intention of, you know, getting a run in and then, you know, maybe studying some or, but I hit the door and I collapse and I just, I literally can't get myself up to go get a shower. I'm just sweating. Perhaps there's um, a bit of heat stroke going on and I'm trying to get cool. I'm trying to sip some water And there's not even enough energy to undress and get in the shower. Well, if you take that analogy from the physical into the mental and emotional, it's a very apt model to use. It's a very useful model to use. When my energy is high, I've got no trouble going and running five or ten miles, then coming home and showering, and then going out to meet with friends and then dancing. And but when my energy is drained, and I've been on a hot roof for eight or ten hours, and I wasn't able to keep up with the hydration, and my body is, you know, craving calories and maybe fighting off heat stroke. I can't even muster the energy to get up and get in the shower. I first have to sleep or rest and hydrate and build the energy up. So this higher wisdom within each of us knows if we don't have enough vitality to face and process out an intense negative emotion or a toxin. Or the energies that were downloaded from a past trauma, it will literally keep them hidden from us. We won't have any conscious awareness of it. and most of us walk around day in and day out with all kinds of traumas, and we're not aware that they're there. We think we're fairly functional and, and you know joyful or you know are living a fairly nice gratitude based life until something happens. And we are in the position of choosing a response for what just unfolded in front of us, and the interpretation that we choose resonates a trauma or a toxin within us. This model says, I have a higher wisdom within me that will not even let me become aware of a trauma or a toxin, even if it's been resonated. I won't become aware of it unless I've got the vitality to deal with it. As I start to deal with it, it doesn't feel very good. If I bring my conscious awareness to it and I do breathing, tapping, goal-canceling worksheets and good nutrition and rest, as this energy that was put into me it starts to move out of me, it feels just as bad as it did when it came in if it was uh, energy from a beating i remember that one of the shows that we reposted from 2014 i chose an interpretation for something that was going on on the internet show that resonated the trauma of me getting bullied when i was 14 years old and and a particular aspect of it, even though I had dealt with it for many years in different kinds of therapies, the particular aspect of it um, that that went along with realizing that the bullies were laughing at me as they beat me, I had never looked at before. It was so against everything I had ever come to believe about why do people hit other people well because they're angry because they've been hurt because they've had their own trauma but here these people instead of being angry at me they were laughing they were poking fun they seemed like they were enjoying it and it my mind when i was 14 years old could not wrap itself around that and so i blocked it from my awareness probably for a solid 50 plus years almost 50 plus years. And when it got resonated from the interpretation that I was throwing on something that happened on the internet show, I started having physical pain and difficulty breathing that was, it echoed the same memory of how I felt when I had the wind knocked out of me and the bullies were beating on me and my head got banged into the concrete wall, et cetera. So these energies that were in me had been there. They'd been in this energy system that we call a mind-body. They'd been there for all these years. And it wasn't until I'd been working with these tools for over 10 years and I had – I've been doing more of the right things. I've been eating healthier. I've been getting good exercise. I've been doing not just the Michael Rice reality management worksheets, but work with the neuro-emotional technique. I would have people do EMDR on me for old traumas. I was progressively getting stronger and healthier and feeling more comfortable facing what you might call my inner demons or my traumas and toxins. It wasn't until then that I chose an interpretation of somebody bullying something that my mind let that come to the conscious awareness. And I could start processing out some of that energy. But there were tears, there was chest pain, there was difficulty breathing, there was a sense of disorientation. And I was a, I was an adult. I'm like 60 years old in my own office. It's climate-controlled, comfortable chair. No trauma physically, no trauma mentally or emotionally was happening to me in that moment. So I had carried these traumas and toxins with me for almost 50 years. And every time I had chosen an interpretation of somebody is getting bullied or a bully is a bad thing for those 50 years, I did not have the this model would say, I did not have the resources, I didn't have the strength, I didn't have the emotional vitality to face and process out that stuff, so it never came to the surface. But if I have, and let's say that that trauma was a a level 8 trauma, level 8 or 9, and my vitality was up at, you know, nine, nine and a half because I'd been doing all of this good work in therapy and on the Internet show and the support groups and all of this business. And, you know, I'd been exercising. I was in fairly good shape physically. So my vitality was at a nine and a half. Let's say that the, uh, the trauma and toxin was at a level eight out of ten. And I was sitting up at a nine, nine and a half temporarily. Imagine using all that energy, eight full life units of energy. I went from flying high one day to feeling like I might die here. Feeling like If I didn't know this work, I definitely would have gone to an emergency room thinking I was having a heart attack or some other internal organ had exploded or whatever. So if you think in those models and you understand that it's just energy... And that your higher wisdom, the healing centers in your own mind, body, energy system, won't let you become aware of these things unless you've got the resources to move through it. Then you can begin to comfort yourself from a different place. You can begin to soothe the panic. You can stay with doing more of the breath work. And I was doing EFT tapping at that time. I can do more reality management worksheets, and drink some good, clean water, get some rest, and move through that energy without running from it, without running into a drug of choice or an activity to keep me busy and distracted or some other unhealthy behavior, which would numb me out to this healing process, to the discomfort of the healing process. But it would also block the healing process. It would leave those energies stuck in my system. And what we're encouraging people to do with this work is trust that if you have a negative thought or emotion or a negative physical sensation, it's okay for you to soften and breathe and allow it to move through you and just apply the tools. And watch the energy move out and trust that it will move out and you will be healthier and stronger and have less, less baggage on the other side of it. So, I had some of that happen yesterday when I did the worksheet. And I started thinking about the nuns and priests when I was in third grade. That was about the the time that I was starting to question some of the rote, rigid teachings that they were having us memorize and, and recite back. And... At that stage in my life, I was still feeling very much like love is the answer and if I work hard enough or pray hard enough or keep my focus uh, intensely enough on what's good, that all of this stuff is going to work out and the people around me are going to turn soft and loving and they're going to get their own healing and they're going to see the truth that we're here for love, etc., and the work I've done since that worksheet yesterday helped reveal to me that I downloaded some beliefs that I was supposed to get other people to be healed, to be happy, to choose love. And when I wasn't able to do that, I downloaded the belief that I was somehow defective, that I was not, that I was too depleted that there was something wrong with me and that that has been resonated by several things in my life today related to my own discomfort with my leg and related to different people that I'm seeing in my therapy and in the support groups where there's this younger part of me that doesn't even come to conscious awareness very often but the younger part of me thinks, you know what? I should be able to fix these people. I should be able to help these people do their own healing. I should be able to wave the magic wand and have all of this pain be dissipated, healed. And so worksheets I've done since that yesterday and some EFT tapping that I did again last night have helped me tune into the the need to address some of the, I'll call it, um, catastrophic experiences I had with priests and nuns in my Catholic grade school experience, and to be willing to go back and do some more reality management worksheets on that and have a friend of mine do some more neuro-emotional technique or some EMDR work on that and to understand that I probably have energies of sadness and anger and fear and hurt that I downloaded back then that I haven't cleared out yet, just as I encountered a whole series of energies like that back in 2014, When I had chosen the interpretation that someone was being bullied in my life back in 2014, it resonated trauma energies that I had downloaded and was carrying around with me for almost 50 years that I had no idea was there. So that's the core of our work. That's why I do this. That's some of the benefits I've been getting from it. I hope it's useful to talk about. The vitality meter and um, and the trauma and toxin meter. One of the things I should say is that Michael Rice says, you know, it's it's a it's a confusing thing for a lot of people when you say, hey, look, the symptoms of healing um, they feel a lot like the trauma of uh, disease and the energy of disease and trauma. So how can you tell when you're going through some kind of a symptomatology whether it's the symptoms of healing or the symptoms of staying stuck, um, wallowing in victimhood or trauma, or being traumatized anew? And so Dr. Rice says, well, there's a number of things you can look to to decide for yourself, is your experience one of healing or one of trauma? The first thing is, he says, have you been doing more of the right stuff? What is the right stuff? The right stuff is eating good food, drinking clean water, getting good rest, staying open to feeling your feelings, using tools like the Reality Management Worksheet or Byron Katie's Worksheet or... Diedrich-Wolzak's Choose Again worksheet. Have you been doing the work that would allow you to face directly the trauma and toxin energy that you're carrying? The next thing he says is, are the symptoms you're experiencing symptoms of elimination or constriction? So if you're crying, if you're um, having, you know, frequent urination and or bowel movements and things are moving if you're having a skin rash because the skin's erupting. If it's moving, it's probably moving out of you. That's a good sign. And another one is, had you been, because you were doing more of the right things, had you been recently feeling a higher level of vitality? And then, you know, you think, wow, this is great. I love doing these worksheets and listening to this Internet show and going to the support group and being surrounded by people that do their work and I'm feeling strong and healthy and loving and this is great. And then later in the afternoon I feel like I'm so depressed I want to end my life or I'm, I'm feeling, you know, cramping in my back and legs and I, well, have I been doing more of the right things and um, am I, You know, had I been feeling that higher level, or then this is probably just a new level of trauma or toxin that my higher awareness, my true inner healing nature says, oh, good, Tim, now that your vitality is up to a 6 or a 7, you can deal with this level 4 or 5 trauma or toxin. And, of course, if I'm sitting at a level 6 and a level 4 trauma or toxin gets processed out, I'm down to a level one and a half or two by the time it's done. I feel like the example I gave of of coming home from working in the hot summer sun on a roof all day in construction where I didn't even feel like I could get up and get in the shower. I was so low on energy. I was, you know, feeling the effects of heat stroke or whatever. And with rest, with hydration, with proper nutrition – I'll recover my strength. Well, that's the same kind of thing in this work. If I keep doing more of the right stuff, if I don't go to drugs and alcohol, if I don't go to rage and blaming other people for my upset, if I do more of those things that helped my vitality get boosted in the first place, if I stay true to the process of doing what is naturally loving and healing, I will regain the strength. And then I want to be willing to stay braced because if I boost my vitality level up to a 6 or 7 or 8 again, it's not going to be too long before my higher wisdom says, oh, good, Tim, now you've got the energy to get rid of this level 7 or level 8 trauma or toxin. And I'm going to need to be willing to feel that fully and do more of the healthy stuff. Stay with it and keep my breath moving. Stay with it, identify the goals and cancel them. Stay with it and do the EFT tapping to allow my system to stay relaxed as it processes out these negative physical, mental, and emotional energies. So that's my offering for today. We're down to about six minutes. If nobody has any comments or questions, I will start the second hour here soon. We've got some time. If anybody wants to comment, 563-999-3581. And call that number and press 1. Or we'll shift over in just a few minutes early and um, play this the second part of Aramaicism's which I think happened in 2014 or 2015 with Dr. Michael Rice and uh, Dale Ellen Hoffman, somewhere in, um, it might have been uh, Carolina, North Carolina, area code 541. Solinda,
0: I was really challenged. Welcome. <laughs>
1: Have a few minutes. What's your what are what's your offering for today?
0: Well, my offering is one thing. I ran across a quote that really touched me, and I thought I'd share it with you and the family. Um, that was, we move at the speed of trust. And I just, that has really resonated for me on both an individual uh, partnership and a communal level. I just thought that was sweet and I would share it.
1: All right. We move at the speed of trust.
0: Right. Okay. Because it's. Certainly resonated for me, all of that I'm experiencing at the moment and all that I'm willing and unwilling to look at. Uh, So it's trust of myself, trust of the other, trust of life, trust of nature, and just all of those things. Um, And I've noticed that it has an effect. It is having an effect on what I choose to put my attention on and also uh, for allowing uh, my willingness and my unwillingness both and accepting that things are proceeding exactly as they're meant to. And I had a a kind of a a mini-aha this morning. I realized that I was trembling all over in my body and I also realized that it was a desire for me to to quote-unquote run away from a situation. And I think it was probably the first time that I've ever consciously felt, okay, (laughs) thank you, Dr. Tim. Okay, uh, this is what's happening. Now, how about just letting it happen and letting it be without putting some sort of judgment on it one way or another. Just watch it. See what's happening. I thought I'd share that with you. that's,
1: That's pretty big. Congratulations on that. It reminds me of somebody I worked with for a few years and they were very honest from the beginning about their drug of choice for in most situations being rage and I kept talking to them about how if they could continue to move from whatever situation that they normally would use rage from. If they continue to move away from the rage into the calm, into the withholding and just observing, they would tap into a level of strength they've never experienced before. And it's it's one of the wonderful paradoxes of life for most of us because most of us feel tremendously solid and we feel tremendous strength when we go to rage. That's one of the reasons we use it. It's like a drug. It lets us feel right. It lets us feel righteous. It lets us feel stronger than if we sit with the negative emotion, which might be sadness or fear or pain or the thought of being helpless, et cetera. And after a couple of years of coaching her about that, she came in one day and she said, I can't believe it, but this situation happened, and this person was pushing all the buttons that I normally would have raged, and I didn't rage, and I felt that strength you were talking about. That's what I got resonated when you said you felt this urge to run, and you chose to just stay there and let it be what it was. So congratulations on that. I will mute you so you can listen to the second part. And thank you for the call and the comment. And um, we'll be back again tomorrow. Blessings. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love. Everything else is false. This is your second hour.
2: Kings won't like it if people are not controllable and live out of their 9-bit mind. And by and large, the 9-bit minds developed on the planet come from hostility and fear. As Dale was sharing, he's at this conference, and here are these guys arguing, raging at each other over the meaning of words. Rather than, what if we actually sat and, and experienced ourselves as the presence of love and let ourselves be taught? This elemental force that comes to us by definition in Aramaic, will teach us the truth. You know, We're here to connect each person not to some king's representative who wants to control your life and the output of your wealth, but rather we're here to connect you with the spirit of truth, the energy that can guide you from the whole creation as to exactly what's coming down the pike and how to function out of that. And that makes you quite literally the offspring of God. You're designed to be there. Paul referred to it as the mind of Christ. Now Paul had difficulty explaining how to live in that mind. You'll notice that when the stress was up and the chips are down, Paul says, why is it the things I would do The experience I've had of full-blown light and love, I cannot do, and the things I hate are what I do. He did not know how to teach the process of forgiveness to release people from their carbon-based memory past and allow them to live in the mind that he spoke about wanting to get to, but didn't know how to get there. Why? He didn't understand the how-to. He never met the man. And he came from a mindset. If you think of who Paul was, Paul was basically a person who hunted and killed people for their religious beliefs that's the base he comes from That's a huge piece of work to break through from that kind of past and when he's up against it paul says i don't know how to do it here i am doing the things i hate again we're going to talk a little later about the forgiveness process and how it empties out carbon-based memory and frees us so that we are available to this mind which, if you look at the mind of Christ, Dale, what, uh, what would be the best Aramaic well understanding of that?
3: You know, it, 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 it's an intriguing thought, because there's, really, uh, there's really not a word in Aramaic that is exactly equivalent to Christos. Christos is an interesting term in Greek, because what, what, if you, let's say you go to some kind of a most theological institutions, what are you usually told that Christ means? Anybody know? Christos. The first? Anointed one. There we go. Anybody know what anointing is? It's Christian, right? <laughs> yeah, they use it. Anybody know where anointing comes from? It comes from Egypt. Now, anointing was the sacramental process of uh, well, maybe we'll get later into this but uh, of putting a sacred oil in a clockwise motion on what's called the third eye the sixth chakra I'll mention that a little later um, and what it was was as the third eye was open directly behind it is the pine cone known as the pineal gland in the geographic center of the brain um, By opening the third eye, it stimulated the opening of what was called the Christos Chakra, which is the crown, which is where the crown of thorns, which is the sun rays, which is the halo. Intriguingly, the tongues of light, Yes.
2: after the disciples were breathed.
3: Yes, exactly. Or even better, let's look at this one. Let's look at some anti-Semitism. I'm getting
2: excited now. Moses
3: comes down off the mountain the second time, getting the, the rest of the Ten Commandments, and he's got horns! Intriguingly, if you look at like the the, 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 uh, the statues from um, what is it, Michelangelo, Moses has horns. If you look in lots of churches, Moses has horns. Let's talk look about at the Justice little. Building. Oh yeah, in Here. the U.S. Justice Building. Now, um, let's talk about first how that started. Uh, in Jerome's Latin Vulgate, which was that was when the Bible was translated from. Let me briefly say this before I say this. If you grew up in a Christian church, you did not grow up with the Old Testament that Jesus would have grown up with. You grew up with the Septuagint. Okay, you grew up with a Greek translation that, and Septuagint is a word in seventy or seventy in Greek that means seventy, which is how many scholars worked on it over the course of two hundred years. It was when the Torah was taken from. Hebrew into Greek and the rabbis of the day were screaming their brains out saying this is the absolute worst thing that could happen to the history of humanity because now people are going to think that only the top level peshat obvious m- metaphorical storyline is the only real truth here and they're never going to see the remez, the darash, and the sod. We're going to talk about what that is later. Pardes, which is an acronym of the four levels of translation that eventually came into the word paradise, created the word paradise, saw it at the deepest level. Now, here it is, bring in just one little nuance of stories and all of a sudden people think it's about Adam and Eve and, and a snake and Cain and Abel, having no clue about what's under that. We're going to go a lot deeper into that tomorrow. But what we start getting into here in the case of, uh, um, of Moses, uh, the, the, is it what is it? I'm trying to, I wrote it down. Cornuta. Cornuta or cornata? Cornuta is the Latin word that literally means horns. Now, interesting. Uh, in Hebrew, the root word is karen, the word is "quran," "quran." interesting. And what that means is filaments or...
2: Emanations of light. What's that? Emanations of Emanations light.
3: Emanations of light, filaments of light. Now, what was it he just did? He came down off the mountain. Maybe he did actually walk down off of a physical mountain, but we're looking at a very common Gnostic idiom. When one communes with God, it's the opening of the temple. You bring the temple, the high cloud, the energy system, the body temple, it gets opened. You take it to the pinnacle of the temple. Okay? The pinnacle of the temple doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus climbed up a bunch of bricks and stood at the top. Okay, I know that's cute. We're looking at a very common Gnostic idiom here. The pinnacle of the temple is the opening where you take the energy system to the place where, much like a balloon, you blow into a balloon and it gets to that point where it's like max capacity and all of a sudden you can see the places where it's thin and the places where it's a little bit thicker. It's the point of entropy, which means that unless you have willingness to allow any kind of residues in the system to be forgiven and removed, it's not going to be able to open anymore. Okay, it's only going to be able to open when you remove whatever blocks there are to its expansion. Now, when he's up here wide open and comes down, he's obviously going to be... Anybody ever have a great meditation or your friend was in a deep meditation and you look and they're just... Remember Maria? The radiation of light? Interesting. Somehow, thanks to Jerome, bless your heart, my friend, uh, it turns into Moses having horns which turns into an anti-Semitism that exists to this day. There's a great episode of Little House on the Prairie from Season 5. Um, it's <laughs> embarrassing that I know this, but um, where uh, Albert was working for... Albert Engels was working for this old Jewish man who made caskets, and Nellie and Willie Olson were like, oh, well, my mom told me that you know all Jews have horns. So Albert went and took one of the guy's hats and, and cut out two little holes in the top of the hat and took it to them. Oh, my God, look! You know, look at it. So they went and uh, Nellie and Willie went and snuck up to the guy's workshop one afternoon and Albert was on the other side of the window with these ram's horns and like as soon as they opened the window to look in he goes, Aah! and they go screaming, running for like two miles. But that's the kind of insane thing that are based on something that's not even accurate or true. And I'll say this and I can say this with an open heart and conscious, active, present love. Many of the people who were out there representing Christianity even for six or seven decades, have no actual idea, not even the slightest clue of its actual authentic history. They don't know about King James. If you're homophobic and you love King James, you might want to research the guy's family, okay? You might want to research him specifically and the relationships in his life. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is blindness. I get a little bit amped about this because I I do understand why people don't look. Because they don't know how to forgive what comes up when that process happens. Difficult. Now, here's the thing. Yeshua said, if I gave you a light, would you hide that light below what?
2: A bushel basket.
3: A bushel basket. Let me tell you a little bit about the word bushel in Aramaic. Okay? These are all the beliefs that we hold. This is our carbon-based memory, the 666. I believe that Jesus was the only begotten Son of God. I believe that um, whatever we're born in original sin. Has anybody ever seen that line in the Bible? It's not there. It actually says you're born as the original blessing of life itself. Huh? It's a little different, isn't it? We just eat the menu served and we never get to the meal, don't we? All these different beliefs that we put on, and then we wonder why we can't see anything anymore. Everything that we believe, everything we've got figured out. I'm an expert now on Jesus or the Bible. There's no humility. There's no open space. So what do we start doing? When we start forgiving, everybody sees that light now, right? It's obvious? Probably not. Anybody now see the light? No. Oh, come on now. It's only three beliefs. This is your BS, as Michael calls it, your belief systems. You mean you're looking through a glass darkly? Very darkly. Oh, I got it. Very darkly. Okay, there's only one belief left. Everybody see that light? Does anybody see the light? Now here's what happens. Instead of trying to add more into the system to convince yourself how correct you are and I've got it all figured out, when you actually start removing the roots the bushel basket, bushel in Aramaic is the word sata, satah. The root is sta, which means to slide fall or fragment something away from its source. Like as an example, if I'm standing next to a mountain and there's a rock and I take the rock off the mountain, if I say this is a rock, that's a mountain, not honoring that the rock is the mountain. That is what sata means. That's also what a blasphemy is. It means to remove something from its true source and to no longer see its relationship. Sata is the root of the word satanah, which is a word in Aramaic that means a being divided against itself. The character of Satan came hundreds of years later. The modern idea that Christianity has of hell, does anybody know where that comes from? Was it in the Jesus teachings? Was it even in the Greek Jesus teachings? No, it was not. Does anybody know where it comes from? Dante. Dante's Inferno, the passion play, the divine play, had nothing to do with the Jesus teachings. Do people know these things? Here's what happens, though. When you start removing bushel baskets, all of a sudden, the light starts showing up. And you start, instead of trying to add things in, you start realizing that this is about removal but what happens is as humanity starts to do this with these lights all of a sudden humans start shining and glowing and you can call that one the Buddha let's say this one's Krishna was Krishna an actual person? this one's Jesus but we're in the west so it's got to be a really big one there's Jesus right? Paramahansa Yogananda a little more modern Eckhart Tolle the big guy how many lights are there? one let me ask you
2: another question real briefly before Michael chimes in. Be- before you go with that one, uh, let's listen to, to Einstein where he says, if you think you're separate or separated from the rest of humanity, you're living in an optical delusion. Uh. What did Dale just show us? How the optical delusion works. The bushel basket. Stop covering your light with hostility and fear. King's teachings. You know, there's an, a sister word in Arabic of satana. Satan is
3: in the Arabic also. Anybody know what the sister word in Arabic is for satana, the being divided against itself? Sounds like this, jihad. There's two levels of jihad. The inner jihad, which is the inner higher turmoil, and the outer jihad, or the lower jihad. And it's amazing because in there, Muhammad says clearly in the Quran, I can guarantee you one thing, 99.9% of the evangelical Christians that are slamming the Quran and, and uh, Islam have probably never read the thing. They've probably never read it. But it's clear that Muhammad says that you must first align that inner higher jihad, that which is within, before you project it out. And that's the funny thing. If it's aligned within, there's nothing to project out.
2: And How many yet, lights is mentioned more often in the Quran than Muhammad is. Absolutely. And
3: Moses is in there. How many lights do I have? Not a trick question. Just one, right? You see the board? That's like humanity. We've got billions of souls on planet Earth. We're so sure that we're all so separate. And yet, how many lights are there? One. The more bushels we remove, that's how the new Earth happens. It's not about us creating something. It's actually about us removing the blocks, removing the blocks that allow its natural expression.
2: That's what forgiveness is. And the optical delusion comes from carbon-based memory and shows up in the 9-bit mind. And so when we're stuck in that 9-bit mind, we're actually stuck. There's, a, there's a, an interesting quote I found recently on the CIA website where they're working to understand how to create the best perception possible for their intelligence agents. And here's what the CIA is saying. We do not record reality. We generate reality. Reality for each person is generated by whatever fires in carbon-based memory literally is an energy that is painted on the inside of our eyeballs. And we've been taught by kings and by the world that the picture we're looking at on the inside of our eyeballs is actually out there. And it is not. Everything you've ever seen through your body's eyes is generated by the content of your mind and is a reflection of the content of your mind. And if hostility or fear is resonated in your carbon-based memory system, then you will create pictures of what you think are other people and you'll think you're actually looking at them when you're looking at the product of what's firing within you, painted on the inside of your eyeballs, and the energy of that hostility or fear emits a literal high energy wave that is sprayed, measurable high energy wave, that is sprayed on whoever you're looking at. If with your perception, that which you generate from within you, you refuse to be responsible, and remove or forgive the content of hostility or fear, then you spray the acid of hostility or fear on the people you're looking at. How many who have the acid of hostility or fear sprayed upon them find that they respond really wonderfully to that and and like it a lot and like to be around people who do that? No, that's just ridiculous. Yeshua speaks about the first law being... A filter in the frontal lobes of the brain over intentions that allows only intentions keyed to love to be used to build these pictures and now when you follow that law when you understand that that's what opens the space for human life to happen then what you're spraying on all the world with pictures based in that is literally the active presence of love. Guess what's going to happen when you do that? People are going to respond differently. It's going to look miraculous. Gee, I did some forgiveness and removed some of my hostility or fear, and this person all of a sudden has become more loving with me. It's miraculous. It's not miraculous. You stopped spraying the acid of hostility or fear on them and started spraying the active presence of love. The presence of your human life and extending that energy out. It's a measurable energy field. Dale has put some Aramaic letters on the board. Interesting, the Aramaic letters are 3D shadows of the spin of the atomic structure of the table of the elements. It's the only language on the planet that's based in elemental forces. And every other language I realized when uh, Jeannie and I we did seven countries last year and about our third country I realized that these people are speaking languages and I don't have a clue what they're saying but they seem to know what you know this person is saying to them when they speak that language and what occurred to me about the third country is ah these languages are all Babel we're babbling right now this is Babel we made something up what? to represent something and what? we try to pardon me what What? What? <laughs> and, and we we try to make it the end all in the be all but it doesn't represent the creation it doesn't represent those elemental forces Aramaic does and that gives it a whole and we'll talk about Rachma we'll talk about Ruka as the elemental forces so
3: yeah right here I've got well I've got two different words well it's really the same word um, but this one is more in syllables okay the word here is rochma, rochma, okay? Now, it's got three, you're going to see like the aleph here that's not included in the word down here. The first syllable sounds like this, ra. And that ra sound means a shining forth of heat and light, okay? It's the same as the word ray. Ray is also a Semitic root that means shining forth of heat and light. Ray, ra, aura is an Aramaic root. Um, Raya, the rays, the sun rays, the crown of thorns. So this right here is the shining forth of light and heat, which is where we've got the reish right here. Intriguingly, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about this in relation to the Torah tomorrow when we've got more time. Right here in the middle, which is this, we have hum, hum. That sound is a glottal stop, I'm originally from New Jersey. If you start a word with, like, hashukah, which is the word darkness, people either backhand you or run, because they don't like the sound. But, hum is the old Hebrew word for womb, okay, or interior place, center of being. Now, womb doesn't necessarily just mean the middle of the body. It also means the spiritual center. One of the things I love to use is from St. Augustine, which sometimes I say when I have that light pen which is that God is a a circle whose center is everywhere but whose circumference is nowhere. I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow in a Semitic term called surfing the leading edge of the cosmos. We'll get to that. Um, But we've got Ra, shining forth of light and heat from whom the center point or the inner spiritual womb. And the last sound is Ma. What does Ma mean? Just guess. Intriguingly, with linguists and anthropologists across the earth, Ma is the sound most often uttered by a child in relation to the maternal figure in its life, whether it's in that language or not. Children naturally look at the mother and say ma. So you've got essentially like a birthing from the inner womb, that shining forth of light and heat. Now let me say a little funny stuff here. Looking at this coming from, uh, in this Greek Septuagint, they had some problems here because... With this being the spiritual center and the womb, there's also something behind the womb. What's right in this area here? The gut, the stomach. How about the intestines? Now, it's funny because you can actually look, and I have a great list. I probably should have brought these that I got from Rocco Errico years ago. Uh, Like, as an example, I believe this was Song of Solomon. Literally, it says this in the Septuagint, which is in the King James Bible. to to this day it says her husband put his hand in the hole of the door now intriguingly uh, this is he's getting ready to leave on like a journey for many many months or possibly longer I believe he's a salesman I don't remember and she's like going through that thing because he's leaving and it says her husband put his hand in the hole of the door and her bowels moved for him does this sound good? sound like a good uh (laughs) I don't think he's going to be coming home as soon as she thought he would. Okay, so he put his hand in the hole of the door to leave and she had a bowel movement. Um, that's a bad translation. Splugsnot would be the word in Greek, okay? Now, intriguingly, um, here's the thing though. It's not wrong, but it's also not right. Another aspect, does anybody know where the word dude comes from? Dude's an Aramaic word. Does anybody know what dude means? You used it when you were a kid. We were talking about dude earlier in terms of cowboy. It means from the bowels. It's an Aramaic term. Interesting. How many people knew that? So when people come up and say, dude, I'm like, yeah. Now, here's the thing, though. What's another way to, well, what's another way to phrase that? You know? When her husband put his hand in the hole of the door, she may never see him again. The example I give is a friend of mine, Tammy, who I grew up down the street with uh, in New Jersey. And she now lives in California. And her son has been all these, on all these tours of duty over to the Middle East uh, and into Asia and uh, there was a time when she didn't know he was coming home. Her husband knew. She didn't know and she just opens the door and her husband's standing behind her and she's like, like just absolutely wide open seeing the face of that which you long for. That again is Rachma. Rachma is the primary word for love in Aramaic and it's also the primary word for friend meaning that I recognize that, much like Namaste, or in the words of Crazy Horse, Tashunko Witko from the Lakota, that I salute the light within your eyes where the whole universe dwells because when you are at that center within you and I am at that place within me, we are one. And Rachma is a word that is completely, let's just be clear, completely lost in modern Christianity. It just isn't there it had so many bushel baskets piled
2: on top that the teachings gone you know, back several years ago we met with and worked a little bit with a group of Aramaic native Aramaic speaking peoples in Southern California and we asked them about this word Rachma and they said that in their tradition the meaning had been lost they didn't know what it meant but that their tradition said it was the most pr- precious jewel that you could possess and in fact is Perhaps it's thought to be the tradition in marriage of a ring with jewels on it, that it, it symbolized that state and it's two, twofold. It is this filter that in the frontal lobes of our brain <coughs> intentions are stored and they're basically three classes of intention. They're intentions based in hostility, which are destructive, their intentions based in fear, which are negative, and their intentions based in rachma, which are loving. When that filter is set, and this is what Yeshua says, when they ask him, what's most important? And all this stuff you call law. And law has nothing to do with the rule of a superior. There's nothing to obey in the law. It's just having relationship with how things happen. You know, The law of gravity never punished anybody for stepping off a cliff. The law of gravity doesn't care what you think about it. It doesn't care whether you like it or you don't like it. You can't say, tomorrow morning, I don't like the law of gravity, so I think I'm going to have my feet go up instead of go down. It's (laughs) not going to happen. The law of gravity just happens. All of these things are what happens. So, when they say to Yeshua, what's most important in the law? He says, and, and they're basically asking him, how do you have a human life? He says, you must have rachma. Here's how it happens. Your whole device... Your body-mind unit, your mode of expression, the, things that, the thing that generates your picture on the world will be based in love. Your human life, it's the most important thing you could have. And when you look at the genius of that, you know, we see so many people who've, who've been basically hurt or experienced hurt within the context of their religious practice and so have blown it off. And, and you know I've heard them speak about this this silly book that comes from thousands of years ago It's just so ridiculous and so primitive and they don't have a clue what's there, the genius that's there in understanding how the energy patterns of this universe works and how we interface with it. And the first step is that of Rachma. It's the gateway that human life, that energy you experienced as a newborn energy enters the form, and it keeps the whole perceptual system on track with love, which is your highest and best. And I promise you, if you're spraying love through your perception on everybody that you see, you're going to have a whole lot better time than if you're in that hostility and fear game and spraying that into your world. And so the genius of understanding how a human life works, that's all law is about. What's the first law? Rachma. Well, speaking of the first law, there's three
3: versions of what's called the two commandments in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mattai, Luca, Mattai, Marcus and Luca. Uh, they're all different. In what one, in two cases, Jesus says. Jesus, Yeshua, says it in response to a question, almost a challenge, really, a test. Um, and in the third one, the scribe actually recites it back as Yeshua says. You know, well, how do you read it? And he says it back to him. Uh, intriguingly, though. He's asked, what's the greatest of the Namosa? Now, Namosa yep. is an interesting one. Um, let me actually, I want to hand this back to you for that, okay. and then I'm going to expand customs. on what you say.
2: Yeah, basically, what are the customs of the people? So, the scholars of the day have forgotten that there's a thing called cause law, and they're into effect rules. And so they say to him, what's most important in the Namosa? And he doesn't answer the most important thing in the Mnemosah. He answers the most important thing in the Orita. He changes it. And it's interesting that one place where the scribe, it's in Luke, the scribe stands up to teach him. He says, you know, how do I inherit eternal life? And Yeshua knows this guy already knows and can parrot all the words. He's got it all in his head. And so he turns it back to the guy. And the guy parrots back the words, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And and if you read that passage, you'll notice Yeshua doesn't say that's the right answer. He says, you spoke the truth. When the man spits the words out, he then tells him what question that answer answers, and it's not the one about eternal life. He says to the man, do this and you shall live. What's Yeshua here to do? Bring you life. And when you really look at that passage, what you can hear Yeshua saying to the man is, Sir, what business do you have asking about eternal life? You're already dead. There is no life in you. You parrot words about love, but notice you want to test me. You're living in a hostility and fear-based mind. You've lost your human life. Here, listen to your own words. In Aramaic, it doesn't say your neighbor as yourself, but rather in order to maintain self. If you have this condition of rachma, the gateway for human life, and you think about the creator or you think of neighbor and in Aramaic, neighbor means anybody that you think about, if you maintain that condition, then you maintain your human life. This is how you have a human life. If hostility or fear comes in when you think of the creator or neighbor, you've lost your human life and rachma is the key to regaining it, opening the gateway for human life to re-enter. And so he's speaking about what's at the cause level, orita, where you know the minds of the day are saying, what's, what's, what what's the most important custom we can tell these people? And he's giving them back. No, guys, we need to go to cause law, not affect beliefs. Hmm. You know, it gets
3: so juicy when I listen to him. All these, it's like ideas rise up like corks on a lake, and some of them just kind of fall to the side because bigger ideas come. Uh, neighbor, we'll have to get back to that a little too. Orita, what does that sound like? Ora, or-ray-ta. Ora is that word light again. Ta genders the word feminine. This is a feminine law of light. What's the difference? Um, commandments. Does anybody know where the Ten Commandments... They're they're, Christ, or they're, they're uh, Jewish, right? How many versions are in the, the Torah and or the Old Testament? Anybody know how many commandment versions? Three. Mm. Anybody know where they come from? They come from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Spell 125, direct translation. Funny, a lot of people don't know these things, but this is what's more important. When we use Namosa, which is a framework to live within. Yeshua wasn't here laying down laws for you to live within. He wasn't here to give you fresh commandments that are fresh fences for you to live within. You're fine as long as you stay in the fence. No, no, no. He was telling you to basically tear the fences down because the law is not something that you live within. The law lives through you when you let all else fall away. And the orita is the law of light that lives through you. And it's funny that he gets asked, what's the greatest of the commandments, which is also the word pukdana in Aramaic, the commandments, what are the things I'm supposed to live within? And he doesn't even answer the question, which is a funny thing that happens to me in a lot of events. People ask me a question and I ask them a question and they're like, oh no, it's one of those kinds of people, huh? Because a lot of times the questions that are asked are often loaded with, not loaded, well yeah, they're loaded, it's like, People ask certain things, and having no real... I say this in, in just absolute love, no real knowledge of the extent of how many roots are in certain questions that they ask. And I know that if I give a really accurate answer sometimes that's comprehensive and accurate and authentic, either it's going to blow their brains out of their head, I mean that in a more of a metaphorical belief system sense, or it's going to send them in, you know, they're going to, it's going to be a catalyst, and they're going to go into turmoil because they don't know that. and They're not going to, to know how to remove that, and they're going to look at me and go, it's your fault. Intriguingly, Rachma is exactly that. In the fifth beatitude, tu vehun lem rachmadeh, dnehun nehun rahma." Intriguingly, this is the one that's translated as, blessed are those who give mercy, for they shall obtain mercy. All I can say about the word mercy is I know it's really intimate for people that maybe were raised Roman Catholic, but that's like a 1% out of 100% translation of that word. Okay? Let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, Let's say as an example that you've done a lot of this work and you've spent decades or even just a, a lot of commitment in removing your bushel baskets. And then you are, as an example standing in front of someone, the the perfect example for me is when when I do water healing processes, I go into this place where it's like I'm not really there. It's just a complete shining forth of heat and light from the inner womb. And I don't mean my womb, I mean the center point of everything. And it's almost like I'm not there. And what happens is some people have amazing experiences of love and light and some people have experiences of absolute chaos and turmoil. And often they'll drop on the ground and they'll go through what Reverend Ron Roth called flight of the spirit, where there's like, almost like a recalibration happening. When you stand in front of someone, as an example, if you're willing to be that light, you're willing to be rahma in the presence of something that appears absolutely chaotic, just because you walk up to someone, let's say that you haven't talked to in 20 years, because they thought you said that awful thing that you never said, just because you're willing to go up to that person, and be in that conscious, active, and present love does not mean that they're going to go, ooh, look, roses and sunshine, let me hug you and kiss you. I forgive you. Okay? What's going to happen is you become a catalyst. That light is going to bring up anything unlike itself in that moment. The key for you is that you, number one, keep your breath moving, and you allow this process to happen. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to look at you and all of a sudden it's going to be like, you know, this romantic comedy and, ooh You know, like Bo Derek running down the beach in a bikini or something. It doesn't always work like that. The key is, can you stay open? Can you have the first law in mind to be open in the moment of uh, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength? And of course, I know he's going to run. Heart, of course, is the word leba in Aramaic, which means one way of saying a source of thinking, but it's more unconscious. What's happening below the surface Below the conscious level, all of your mind, which of course is your thought, all of your strength. And I wanted to say this because of this. That word strength in Aramaic is chalak. Now, interesting, hilak is again chaya, which is the word life, and it's also resurrection and save and all these other things. Body, temple, church, haikla. Um, intriguingly, that if you look at that in Aramaic, it's not telling you to hold on with your strength. It ain't like hold on to Jesus. It's exactly the opposite. It's actually a willingness that when you let go and you allow, as I said, your temple to be open. What did Yeshua say before many of his healings? He said, Eth fatach, Be open. Meaning, drop whatever it is that's going on for you, your beliefs, what you think needs to happen, whatever you think you've got to let go of. Just be open and the law of light will move through you. Remember the, the dots that I was pushing through with the pen and letting the light through? It's exactly the same process. Now, when you drop your own strength of trying to hold on, through your willingness, the strength of life itself will live through you. And that's what Yeshua was talking about. And that's the aurita. That's the law of light that lives through you when you're open. And others will recognize that. Some, when they're in the presence of that, uh, it might not look so good. You know... If, well, I was going to say if Minnie Pearl walked into this room, not everybody would be happy. I think some of you would run because she died like 20 years ago. But <laughs> what I'm saying is like, you know, the hound, You know, she had the hat with the tag on it. Not everybody likes to be around somebody like that. Some people, that gets their hackles going because this starts resonating, all this stuff. Or Dolly Parton or somebody that's really wide open. Everybody knows someone that's wide open and you don't, maybe you don't quite feel comfortable being that open and you kind of shrink back. It's not going to change the catalyst or the fact that the law of light is in process, but it's do you know how to forgive what's coming up or do
2: you not? And that's what the key is in the whole process. Or are you controlled by unconscious dynamics? Mm. If you come into that space where there is that flow of light, it's empowering. And when you get to new levels of vitality, what yesterday you were able to hold down all of a sudden starts to move. And if you're not able to or you don't have the tools, to open that unconscious part of the mind, then you'll be run from that part of the mind. And it's interesting, you know, uh, the Nobel Prize was given to Freud for discovering the unconscious. Freud no more discovered the unconscious than fly in the air. You can go back to the Aramaic language and the whole representation of the unconscious is built even right into the language. For instance, there's a suffix in Aramaic that if you add it to a word, O-O-T-A, that means that something from the unconscious is controlling three things. Your perception, your decisions, and your behaviors. Anybody ever said to yourself after you did a behavior, I don't know why I did that? It's because it was run from something that was resonated in the unconscious. And if it's out of harmony with the truth of who you are, if you want to stop being run by your unconscious, you've got to be willing to crack open your unconscious, which is what Aramaic forgiveness does. You know, we're taught that forgiveness in this culture, virtually everyone's been taught that forgiveness is about how you did something terrible to me, but it's okay, I'll let you off the hook. And of course, I can let a million people off the hook for what's happening inside of me, and I've done nothing to address or change what's happening inside of me. Forgiveness in Aramaic, when you substitute in your mind in order to overcome generations and generations of deep-level programming, that forgiveness is about letting them off the hook or letting yourself off the hook, never forgive anybody ever again. Never forgive yourself for anything because you can't. You can pardon somebody, you can let somebody off the hook, you can let yourself off the hook, but that has nothing to do with forgiveness. Think the word remove when you think forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now you're on track. Am I? Is there something moving from my center that's based in hostility or fear? Then I want to learn to be responsible and forgive that, remove that. Elsewise, it will run my perception, which is the guide for my earthly life, my decisions. Decisions are things that cut us off from options. You know, decide comes from the same root as suicide, homicide, fratricide. It means to cut off or to kill off. So when we're in decisions, we have the potential of the feedback of the whole of the creation guiding us and we're stuck in the 9-bit mind. And whatever the 9-bit mind did yesterday, it's going to prompt you to do today from that unconscious level. That's a decision. This thing is just a decision-making machine, and it only knows how to replicate the past. There's no future in the past. It just plays out over and over and over again. And then, because your decisions are made, then your behaviors are established. I've come to believe that the unconscious is a totally unnatural condition for a human being. We are not designed to have an unconscious. That veil that they spoke about breaking down of the temple is our temple. It's not about a purple curtain in the church. And it is the barrier that we build when we hold our breath, refuse to allow the breath to move whatever's in us, show it to us so that we can remove it if we choose to. So it becomes a whole different game when you see the application of these tools as opposed to a nice philosophy that speaks about mimosa, a result or a custom that you better live up to or you're going to get punished for it. Mm -hmm. Fear-based teachings, nothing to do with the Creator, nothing to do with love. You can go back into the Old Testament and you hear even back then, here's the Creator speaking to humans saying, fear is a commandment of man, Mm -hmm. it's a principle established by man. If anybody's talking to you about the Creator and brings anything to do with fear into the game, they're lying to you. Or they just don't know any better. But it's not, it's not accurate. It's their own unconscious dynamics. And it becomes the customs that be, are forced onto people. You better do this or you better do that. And you'll notice that most of those customs make a lot of money for the people who enforce them. If you have looked at the private prison system in America, you see the effect of the customs of the people. And men making more and more rules to collect more and more money from more and more people's pockets. When we remove that unconscious dynamic and connect directly to the source, then we're not motivated to have to live out of that insanity because the unconscious is gone. Mm. Man, there's so many places to to move in on that. Maybe we should do a month of this. We could do a month. Easily. Everybody else would be then out we'd have the room. to do six months.
3: Everybody, the room would be empty by then, but the two of us would still be in here, just yak, 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 yak. No. Um, here's, there's just so much, so much Riffs rich in there. Um, there was one thing in particular that you said that, I think we, we go get back to this at some point too, the UTAH. Yes. Um, maybe tomorrow, but um, I wrote that down. Speaking of this, you know, this law of light and this being lived through, there's, a, there's an idea that has been foisted upon you. One of those is that fear God thing. That word is tedkal or tedkul. Kul means whole. Okay? Now let me extre- explain what the ted, tedkul or tedkul means. You know, like let's say that you're walking in an alleyway and all of a sudden you get halfway in it and something goes crack and you go remember what i talked about the pinnacle of the temple okay now your temple opens this is not fight or flight okay your temple opens up now you just had a catalyst brought into the system now, if you're a person with all kinds of junk from the echoes of your hidden past that are based in fear, that's going to come up, and all of a sudden you're going to realize you're scared faithless, right? right. But if when the, t- the temple opens, is, is a pretty, it's probably a pretty clear response. The temple opens up, and you don't have the junk in there. What's actually happening? You're firing on all cylinders. Your temple's open. Ted Cool had nothing to do with fearing God, they had to do with your temple being open so that you are so in resonance with the whole that there's no separation. There is nothing to fear. And it's not even quite accurate that there's nothing to fear but fear itself. No, you don't even have to fear fear itself. Even that's a lie. It's a great line, I know. Now, nothing to fear but fear itself. I love you, buddy. But um, He's a great man, but that one's not quite on. But he did, he did hit something close to the head. Now, here's the thing, though. This has a lot to do with something else that was foisted upon us. And that's the idea of original sin. And I mentioned a little, or I think I mentioned it, or maybe it was talking with someone that, you know, there's no such thing as original sin. Original sin is a myth. It's the thing in the garden that was the top to shot level metaphorical storyline. But sin and, well, let's say good, evil, and sin. I just want to say a little bit about this. Um, <clears throat> first of all, uh, there's no word in Aramaic and not even really in Hebrew for good. There's tuv. Now here's the thing about tuv. This is one of the biggest issues that you have when you study first century meanings versus modern meanings. Because if you go, like as an example to me, a modern descendant Aramaic speaker like Syriac or whatever it is that you're finding, Assyrian, you're going to find today's meanings. You're not going to find first century meanings. And uh, I, I, I'm going to put this down. I just went, I had such an interesting experience. It was about five years ago when I uh, met a, a, a native uh, Assyrian Aramaic family. And they told me about how they had such a pride in their culture because it was in the mid-19th century that they were started to bring the Aramaic language back. And what they did was they laid the King James Bible next to their Aramaic Bible and they cross-referenced a 17th century translation from 1611 to find meaning in their own language. And I, like, my whole being went... <laughs> it shuddered. And I'm like, well, that explains why I talk to some native Aramaic speakers today and they have no idea of the actual authentic first century roots. They have no idea what a lot of the meanings are. And then you got this, like, you know, California surfer Jesus coming and telling them deeper insights on that. Some don't take that kindly because they think I'm like... And here's the thing, though. I wasn't raised with it, so I'm able to see things that I think some people maybe wouldn't see. But this, this idea of sin and good and evil, that word that was translated as good, tuv, okay, is an interesting word. It doesn't mean good. There's no word for good, okay? Good is an interesting thing because as soon as you say, this is good, what does your mind do without you realizing it? This is bad. Your mind, probably almost every time, instantaneously kicks itself in half Yeshua says do not doubt. What does the word doubt mean? The word is tetplug in Aramaic and teplug means divide. Do not divide. Remain single. Now, you've got this word good. It could mean goodness. Goodness is interesting. Okay, Goodness is an interesting term because if I say she radiates goodness, that's not really a judgment so much as it's almost like an awareness of a process rather than some kind of stagnant judgment. Okay, I'm going to explain good and evil and sin to you right now with bananas. Okay? I've got three bananas here.
2: You didn't know sin had anything to do with bananas,
3: right? you had nothing. Nothing. Apples, Apples too, but bananas, bananas are a little easier to pull this off with. Now, this one here is evil. Okay? It's not completely evil, but it's pretty evil. That one, that could be pretty evil. It's not completely evil, but that's pretty evil. This one here is pretty good, the one in the middle. What? So, good is this. What that word good means in Aramaic and Hebrew, what it means in any Semitic language, Akkadian, Phoenician, Sumerian, a lot of Semitic languages that people, you know, that are language experts have never even studied, it means ripe. Let's look at it this way. This green banana is going to be perfectly ripe at exactly 10 a.m. this Friday morning. It'll be perfectly ripe. Can I do that 100% accuracy? Is it possible? Nope. Now, how about this one? Can I say, okay, last Friday morning at exactly?
1: T- Ooh. Let's
3: try this way. Can I look at this one that looks overripe? This would be considered evil bisha, which is also an archery term that means off target. Okay, can I find this and look at it and say, okay, at exactly at exactly 10 a.m. Friday morning, this was perfectly ripe. Can I do that with 100% accuracy? No. When's the only time you can judge fruit as being ripe? In a moment. It's right now. I'm going to bring it to my nose, and I'm going to smell it, sink my teeth into it. Ripeness is only possible now, and that's what goodness means. The word good doesn't mean good as opposed to bad. It means fully, wholly ripe and present in this moment. When Yeshua talked about ripe soil and arid soil or bishah soil, he was talking about the difference between fully, wholly present in this moment or not in the moment. The only thing that evil means is I'm not awake, I'm not aware right now in this moment. Okay? Now, intriguingly, the word sin is very close as well. Sin is the word chetah. And what chetah, sin means, is miss the mark. So you've got good, you've got evil and you've got sin and a lot of people don't even realize that the good and the evil that you've been fed through Christianity is actually a complete system of lies. Have, have you actually studied the history of it? you understand what I'm saying about ripeness though and good and evil? Good means open in the presence of the moment. Ripe. Unripe, and this is much like a system you can look at on the... Let me show it on here briefly. You could say... It's almost like a line. And this is a judgment, of course. And you could say that somewhere in here, when it's down here, it's evil. There's a green banana. When it's over here, it's evil. It's overripe. But when you are not in the future, not in the past, but wholly present in the space of this now moment, that's when you experience ripeness, and that's where goodness comes from, and that's the tuv that Yeshua spoke of, which is the root of an amazing word that sounds like this, tuvehun, which, and then we probably have to close
2: after that. I'm going to turn it back to you, but yeah, we're tuvehun. So thinking in terms of the target, when I fired, and, and sin is an Aramaic word, that when I fire at the target and I miss the bullseye, the scorekeeper yells, sin, I'm off the mark. When they said the wages of sin is death, it had nothing to do with God's going to get you for your sins. If you put enough energies that are off the mark into a cell, the cell starts to fall apart. When you get enough cells falling apart, the organs involved fall apart, enough of that happens and the structure won't support life. Miss the target altogether and it's evil. Evil. Two different meanings. Another of here's a piece of fruit that isn't ripe. We're all in the Aramaic sense, in that Aramaic sense, evil. We're all unripe. Who of us is finished? Mm. We're in process. And then Tuvehun speaks of the fact that that which will take us to fullness or ripeness, the Creator planted in us from the beginning. You know, and you think about this word, and it's Yeshua's first public teaching and he repeats it over and over and over again in the Beatitudes. Tuvehut, tuvehut. And the Greeks translate it as blessed are they. But there's no such thing as some sort of a blessing is going to come along to you. But rather, what is being said there is that there is in you a latent neural structure. It's latent because it's been overlaid with the thumbprints of hostility or fear. And... The Beatitudes are an instruction set for how to activate that which was placed in you from the beginning that has been made latent by your hostilities and fears. And when you bring that from that latent or unconscious state into awareness or just below the surface, then that becomes the source of your perception. So an attitude of mind based in love becomes your conscious possession you who, and then each of the Beatitudes is a set of instructions. One of the ways we know of the primacy of the Aramaic, you know, don't expect the Greek scholars to rush out really soon and say, oh yes, that's right, it was all Aramaic, because that means that that which is based in the Greek has to be shoveled out and you've got to start over. But this one line where we're told that we're supposed to be now, here's a man who's... Saying, I come to connect you to the spirit of truth and now somebody wants to convince you to be poor in that spirit. Does that make any sense? The word there is not poor but home. Do you have your home in the eternal forces from God or do you have your home in the mind of Adam, Adamos, the red clay, carbon-based memory, The anti, the thing that goes against living in the mind of the wholeness, which was called the mind of Christ, is that which is stored in carbon-based memory, the antichrist. The only thing that will ever take you out of the mind of wholeness that you came in with is the thumbprints that are put upon you and the things in your genetics that are activated by that and become the base of your perception. Forgiveness means you remove that And the first of the Beatitudes having your home in these eternal forces. Again, you just, you go, there's so many cases now where you go to the ancient Aramaic and then you listen to the latest that physics and medicine is coming up with and it's perfectly identical. And so the physicists are saying every molecule in the universe, do you suppose, just from a strictly physics point of view, that you'd be better off receiving information from every molecule in the universe and being aware of that and be able to use that, or would you be better off in your 9-bit mind? Pretty clear. And that's physics. That's, that's modern, you know, that's Harvard information, 9 bits of information. So this beatitude says one of the ways that you activate the neural structure implanted in you to guide you to happiness and well-being you don't have to make it up, it's in there, it's already yours, is that your home is in these eternal forces from the Creator. Where do you live? Do you live in your 9-bit mind? If you do, then you notice there's there are lots of reasons to be hostile and fearful. Of course all those reasons are internal, but when they move in us we paint pictures on the inside of our eyeballs that convinces us that the reason we're in that hostility or fear is external. And that hostility and fear is literally our cellular disease. When we understand the first law, we go back to Rachma, we live with the active presence of love moving in us, and that becomes the
0: flow of energy that heals all disease and is the source of all healing.